The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers based on their personal and or professional experience with grief and bereavement. Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Lighthouse Beacon Podcast. My name is Rami Shami, and I'm your host today. A little background about our organization. We are located in Oakville, Ontario, Canada. I used to just say Oakville, and then I added Oakville, Ontario. Because this podcast has actually gone international, I have to add Canada now, which we're really excited about, all the way to Australia and, and even Zimbabwe. And it's just really cool to see how the breadth and scope of this podcast, especially as it pertains to children's grief. In any case, we are in Oakville, Ontario, Canada. But we provide services predominantly to the greater Ontario, greater Toronto, Ontario. We offer facilitated grief peer support groups to help children, teens, and their families through the journey of, of a death-related loss and the grief that entails. Our groups are open-ended and ongoing, which offers each individual of that family, however that family is de- uh, defined, an opportunity to participate in their own way. But before we begin, I would like to share with you a land acknowledgement. And interestingly enough, I'm a strong proponent of truth and reconciliation, and part of that is a land acknowledgement and a reflection as such. But I receive quite a bit of pushback uh, many a times when I, you know, I feel honored to share a share, uh, land acknowledgement. Some of the things I hear is that do we have to have this in every meeting? You know, the mispronunciation the, of of the nations, or even just not the inclusion of nations. And I appreciate very much that the land acknowledgement, it shouldn't be a recitation. I mean, we begin with recitation to know what land we are, are living on, we've settled on, but it's a reflection. It's a reflection of how we've come to be as settlers, how my parents came here as immigrants and refugees and settled on, on land that is historically uh, indigenous uh, uh, honored. And the genocide, harm, trauma, that's been incurred and experienced by Indigenous peoples for generations, as is being truly been brought to awareness now with uh, with the uncovering of Indigenous children in the residential schools across Canada, a very dark aspect of our, of our history in Canada. In any case, I would like to acknowledge the land that I am standing on today is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. I also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 signed with the Mississaugas of the Credit and the Williams Treaty signed with the multiple Mississaugas and Chippewa bands. We have launched these podcasts in an effort to create a greater awareness, not only to children's grief, but especially the diversity within children's grief, the diversity of support and the diversity of the children teens and youth that are that are experiencing grief. And join us on this podcast today as an exceptional individual with both personal and professional. So I'm so excited to hear those aspects of their, their experiences of grief, especially as it relates to their upbringing and their work. I have to read their entire bio because it's so rich, you know. Juno Cavitz, they, them is a white, queer, trans, harm reduction, grief and death counselor who has been working in substance use, youth mental health, and bereavement support since 2016. Their work is informed by professional roles in outreach, psychoeducation, counseling, training, and coordination within these sectors, as well as the lived experience of drug use and addiction, surviving a parental suicide death, and the multiple opioid deaths of friends within communities of drug use and recovery in Toronto. They believe deeply in assisting others in creating their own paradigms of understanding grief and loss, witnessing grief that often goes unaddressed and co-creating ritual. I love that terminology, you know, co-creating ritual and memorial for those who die by and the survivors of stigmatized and disenfranchised deaths. Juno is the co-founder and current program coordinator of Breakaway Community Services, GLOW, which represents Grief, Loss, and Wellness Initiative. Outside of work, they are a distance runner. I can't run to save my life, in all honesty. A mycology nerd, which I'm really excited to hear what mycology is, and a sober raver. Welcome, Juno. Thank you, Rami. It's really great to be here. I'm uh, tuning in also from Toronto 
um, here with my dog next to me. Really excited to be on the pod. Please, what's your dog's name? His name is Tosi. Um, it's pronounced it's pronounced Tosi, but spelled T-O-C-I. His breed actually uh, is called Sholo Squintly. He's um, a very ancient indigenous breed to Mexico. And interestingly enough, the breed actually is thought um, in Mayan and Aztec culture to be kind of like the guides to the underworld. Um, so they essentially were taken care of by their humans uh, in the the living side of life and if they were taken care of well they would take care of their owner in the underworld so i adopted him only about two months ago so we're still settling him in it's been a big change for for both me and him but he's doing okay so far <laughs> that's wonderful to hear juna that's wonderful to, i mean thank you for sharing that and where to begin honestly where to begin Maybe, Juno, if you could tell us a little bit more about Breakaway Community Services, especially as it relates to grief and loss from the perspective of children, youth, and teens. Yeah, totally. Before uh, before I jump into that, there's something I, I like to do in terms of land acknowledgements and treaty commitments, et cetera. And this is a practice that comes from um, an academic mentor of mine who was one of my favorite profs when I was in social work school. Um, and it goes a little bit beyond um, land acknowledgements to kind of create a space where during check-ins or during introductions, people can talk about what their current tree commitments look like. Um, so in my bio, obviously, it said that I am a, a settler, uninvited settler, uninvited guest, uh, currently living in what is now known as Toronto, originally called Tacarano. Um, which is governed by the Dish With One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant. Um, and when I introduce myself, I like to just kind of give an overview of how I'm envisioning my treaty commitment as a treaty person kind of on a month-by-month -month basis. Um, and one of the things I'm focusing on now at work is being able to funnel money, uh, some of our government funding, directly back into Indigenous communities can, to continue doing grief and loss support that they have been doing, you know, off the sides of their de desks if they do it professionally or off their backs if they've been doing it as unpaid labor. And um, so that's kind of what the commitments look like in my work life and in my personal life. Um, I, I spend a lot of time doing peer support and mutual aid within uh, drug use and recovery communities. So opening up my home to people who are looking at maybe wanting to get sober, coming down, um, tweaking out, having a hard time with something kind of tangentially related to mental health struggles or addiction struggles. So that's part of um, how I envision the ask in the Wampum Belt Covenant to peaceably share resources uh, of this land, because historically they've been very hard to share. So being able to share those kind of emotional support resources is one of my biggest focus. Thank you, Juno. Uh, just a quick question. What is tweaking out? <laughs> tweaking out, so in drug user recovery slang, if you've either um, taken too much of something, usually something like a stimulant or an upper, uh, and you're just not having a good time because of the amount of drugs you've taken. I say this because I recently had someone in my home who was uh, really tweaking out after taking a lot of a stimulant. And uh, that's one of, I have a really cozy home in Toronto in a neighborhood that I love and being able to share that resource of my home being a pretty quiet, calm, safe space with people is one of the ways I, I envision kind of being beholden to my treaty responsibilities. Thank you, Juno. You know, I struggle. I really struggle with this, Juno. I hear someone like yourself who actually takes it upon themselves to have accountability and responsibilities to aspects of the treaty. And then I look at organizations who can't even, even though it's drawn out for them and written up and sent to them, think it's too much to recite, literally just recite a land acknowledgement, let alone the treaty, you know, accountabilities and responsibility, let alone the personal commitment to it. We're worlds apart. We're still so far, I find, so far from any, how can I say, endeavors of reconciliation in so many ways, especially within the social sector. Can I ask you about that? Like, 
how do you how do you navigate that? Here you have your own like it's 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 absolutely beautiful. You know, here you have your own accountabilities and responsibilities. And yet we live and work in organizations and and places that are like land acknowledgement, you know, what is that? I mean, I, they don't even know what nations are involved. So how do yeah. how do you mentally like maybe I'm asking this personally. I don't want to take too far yeah. from what we we'll talk about today. How do you deal with that? I think in the beginning it was, you know, I've I've worked at agencies where there has been pushback and um, I I believe as a settler and someone trying to act in solidarity that it's my job to stay in those places where there is resistance um, so that people like indigenous people who are most impacted don't have to face the brunt of the pushback themselves. But there have been, there have been agencies where I felt it was a bit of a lost cause um, even within the bereavement sector that you know, getting someone on board with a land acknowledgement was something that took a couple months of convincing. And then I think, I think to them, it felt like a box was checked and that was all that had to be done. Um, so for me, I mean, I really lucked out in, in the agency that I'm at right now, Breakaway Community Services, because there is a shared um sense of responsibility and ethical commitment to doing this work in as decolonized a way as possible, even though we are, um, our entire management team right now, which is three people is white. And I don't know if we have, we have a couple indigenous people on staff in the GLOW program, but we've got a long way to go. You know, um, I think inherently social services is set up to be colonial and um, I am a big proponent of abolishing all of these systems, which takes a lot of time, obviously. But when I think about like where to start, I think it's trying to do the work of decolonization at home and in the relationships that are like closest to me. So really being able to like live those principles and get involved in a way that I think is is nourishing also. Um, because like I said, I've I've been in places where there was a lot of pushback and I wasn't I wasn't able to stay in those places. And that that was a really hard call for me to make in leaving. But I, I feel your frustration. Thank you. Uh, you know, do you know it's it's fortunately, unfortunately refreshing to hear, you know, what you've said. I, I do struggle. I do start struggling in some workplaces with especially that, that piece. Um, and so I, I do very much appreciate how you framed it today. So thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Let's, uh, let's get into some of the work you do, especially if you could tell us a little bit more about Breakaway Community Services. Yeah. So I've been at Breakaway, um, since November 2019, and uh, I, I like I said, I lucked out. I feel I lucked out with the agency that I work at. I, I have general feelings about like the social work sector in, in its entirety. But as far as like places, I feel safe and fortunate to work at. Breakaway is definitely one of those places. Um, it is located in Parkdale, so downtown West side of Toronto, which is a increasingly gentrified neighborhood. Um, there's a lot of Indigenous people that live in that area. Uh, it's also home to a lot of Tibetan immigrants, um, and then a little bit further north, Portuguese community. So it's got like, it's got deep cultural roots. It's also one of the higher overdose areas in the downtown west side our highest concentration of overdoses are typically downtown east. But if you look at kind of west area of the city, Parkdale is one of the hubs. Um, so Breakaway is a multifunction harm reduction based substance use support agency. So we, I think our staff team is about 40 people right now, um, including management. And then we have a board of directors as well, of course, because we're a nonprofit. Most of this support happens on an outreach basis. So we have a number of different teams that cover various populations from like opioid use specifically to um, women, to older adults, to queer, trans, and two-spirit youth. So those are kind of divided between different programs. 
Um, and Breakaway's been around since the 80s. It's moved around a few different times, but it's been uh, at our current location, 21 Strickland, I think for at least 10 to 15 years, maybe. Uh, and super rooted in, in harm reduction frameworks always has been. We have people that come to the work from various different educational backgrounds. So some people are coming as psychotherapists, some are social workers. One of the things I also really like about Breakaway in its commitment to harm reduction ethics is that we have a good number of people who work with us who are not registered with an official college or body or don't even necessarily have a university or college diploma because in our keeping to harm reduction ethics in believing that people with lived experience are of the same expertise as people with degrees, uh, we also hire people based on their lived experience and then provide like ongoing opportunities for professional development. So that's just a snapshot. Um, like I said, a lot of our work takes place on an outreach basis. So our official kind of catchment area is Toronto. Um, although I know sometimes we do have people from even further outside of that. Brilliant, Juno. Uh, I have so many questions now. Um, what do you mean by uh, multifunction? What uh, is the outreach piece involved? Is it, you know, there's this whole cliche piece of meeting people where they're at, but what does that really mean when it's, when it's an, an outreach? And lived experience in terms of the people you hire to provide the services, it's, and I, I'm not sure if you referred to this, but that's similar to a peer support model, is it not? Yes. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the term lived experience, lived or living experience gets thrown a lot, uh, thrown around a lot, I feel like in harm reduction and kind of conversations around equity generally. I I really like to kind of front load that combination conversation or explanation with pushing back against the idea that lived experience is a monolith or it means one thing or it needs to look like a certain thing. But generally what we mean is that uh, people with lived experience when we're talking about harm reduction or drug use are people who have the actual lived experience either in their own life or in someone's life close to them of uh, drug use. Most often we're referring to drug use that could be classified as chaotic, um, unpredictable. Some people like the word addiction, some people do not. Um, I myself identify as an addict in recovery. I've been sober for a number of years now. Um, but generally it refers to people who have lived the story themselves. And if we can, for the general, thank you for that, Juno. And if we can just for the general audience who may not be well versed as as yourself and in some ways in some ways myself the term harm reduction i know it's a human rights approach but what does it what does it mean in the work that you do yeah so the term harm reduction originates in the 80s uh, when essentially we needed an approach to chaotic potentially harmful drug use um, that a lot of people were finding they they either weren't able to stop using entirely or they didn't want to. That wasn't a goal of theirs. So harm reduction essentially says that everyone has the right to be in relation to their drug use or any other potentially harmful behavior in a way that works for them. And we get to choose the ways that we want to be in relationship. And the, the harm reduction part is that the, the entire goal of this kind of way of thinking or set of policies or practices um, or healthcare approach is that we are going to try to lessen some of those harms associated with drug use or, like I said, with another potentially risky behavior. So when we're talking about substance use um, harm reduction, it could be anything from HIV to hep C prevention. Uh, disease transmission from sharing um, rigs or needles or pipes or even joints in the age of COVID. So it can be the physical health harms. It can be emotional risks, uh, like, you know, the impacts of withdrawal or come downs from specific drugs, cravings, etc. And then we can also talk about legal and criminal harms too. So this is one of the big areas that harm reduction gets very political and we'll see this in conversations around like decriminalization and legalization right now. One of the biggest harms uh, and obviously especially for like black and indigenous and racialized communities 
is the legal consequences of even just having drugs on you, right? And uh, that's one of the ongoing conversations now that weed has been legalized is how do we kind of make reparations or make amends for those massive, massive legal harms that continue to follow people around. So one of the things I really like about harm reduction is it ab- is is absolutely like a, a healthcare strategy, but it's also kind of, it's a movement of people led by people who have that lived experience, who are drug users themselves, kind of being able to make recommendations and push back against the ways that we stigmatize and shame people who use drugs. And barrier them from services, whether it's exactly. uh, intentionally, consciously, or implicit and unconsciously. You know, and exactly. Absolutely, Juno. I see that a lot of the work in a lot of the work I do in hospice palliative care where somebody's living with a progressive life limiting illness or somebody's bereaved and using substances and drugs to cope with the trauma and loss, or they've had experiences of traumatization throughout their life. And this is part of their tension reducing behaviors. And all of a sudden, well, if you use drugs and use substances, you can't come and be served by us. Right. And that's in yeah. itself a barrier. And I want to take that and lead into maybe some of the work that you do in terms of what do you see with respect to substance use, drugs, and grief? You know, you, you speak about being a youth mental health and bereavement support, right? What have you seen, obviously, in the, in the spirit of confidentiality with respect to substances and drugs and addictions uh, when it comes to grieving and grief support? Yeah. Um so yeah, like it says in my bio, I've I've done a number of kind of had a number of different roles in uh, youth mental health. Um, both have been from a harm reduction lens, so they encompass some form of of substance use support. I work from the understanding that for a lot of children and teens, the experience of loss can be pretty traumatic, uh, and for some of them, uh, myself included. Turning to substances as a way to cope with that loss, especially when it's it's not being um, sufficiently addressed by caregivers, uh, is is really really common, you know. Um, and we see this as well in like the population of adults who are using substances. You know, harm reduction understands chaotic substance use or what we could call addiction as a trauma response a lot of the time, obviously, that if we were working from a trauma-informed perspective, that goes without saying, right? Um, but for folks who are maybe newer to this conversation, I think that's a, a pretty foundational understanding that um, people who are stuck in addictive cycles likely have the experience of trauma at some point. And with the experience of trauma, loss is always part of it, whether that's you know a human death that's resulting in a bereavement process or not, there's usually loss as a component. So you said something, Juno, that, I, that caught my ear. And I just wanted to bring it back to that and hopefully in, in your comfort level to expand on it. You said, myself included. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about my own lived experience because I'm quite open about it. So like I said, I, I identify as a sober addict in recovery. I've been sober for six and a half years now. I have a massive recovery community that I'm part of that I do uh, a ton of peer support in, you know, like outside my my work in uh, the harm reduction sector. It's something I see as a lifelong commitment. And I also have the experience of losing a parent, my dad, to suicide when I was 14 um, as a result of his his own mental health struggles and some other kind of external factors that were playing in at the time. Um, but, you know, my lived experience is turning to drugs really not long after my dad died uh, at all. I think it was probably a few months after he died that I started using drugs. Um, as a way to cope with the pain, you know, and uh, I have worked with a number of youth who have had that experience too. And this is, you know, in addition to being kind of like anecdotal or colloquial in the stories we tell within recovery communities, there's also a fair bit of research to back up that often people who end up in like residential substance use treatment have massive experiences of loss at some point in their lives, you know, whether that's, like I said, like, the grief of losing a significant human, uh, or it's, you know, loss of language, uh, which I would include, like, you know, cultural genocide of Indigenous peoples in this country, um, from losing family if you've been, 
you know, wrapped up into the childcare system, all of those kinds of experiences of loss. So yeah, I have I have my own lived experience with substance use, recovery, trying to sort through how to grieve while using drugs, how to get in touch with my grief on a deeper level now that I'm no longer using drugs. Yeah, it's, it's definitely been a journey for me. Thank you, Juno. And, and you know, that's the diversity of children's grief that I feel it's, maybe the terminology isn't appropriate, but you could correct me, please. It's been marginalized, been oppressed, been even ignored, not even on, on the radar map. So much of children's and youth and grief support uh, is quote unquote mainstream. It's affluent yeah. neighborhoods. It's uh, And, and the, the diversity piece, when we talk about diversity, we don't even look at the inclusivity when it when it comes to the the, the life circumstances of of children, youth, and teens who have experienced a death related loss and the trauma. I love how you said that. You acknowledge it. There's there can be definitely a traumatization aspect to that. And and you know, at, again, at your comfort level, at 14, you started using drugs to cope with a couple of months after your dad died of suicide to cope with the experience of grief. How did it, can I ask you, how did it help? How didn't it help? How long did you use drugs to cope? When did it, when it became an addiction? How Mm -hmm. did it transition from the addiction? Is it, because I hear a lot, you know, you you take away the substance, well, you still leave the trauma, right? So the loss and experience and the grief is still there. The substance is used to cope with it. The substance isn't the issue, right? Yeah. So would you be okay to open up a little bit about that, especially for our listeners to understand you know, what happens when, when those kind of circumstances unfold? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, I'll preface by saying that one of my like really foundational understandings working from a, a harm reduction worldview is understanding that all drugs or risky behaviors have potential harms, but they also have associated potential benefits, right? And people use drugs because they feel good. They are life-saving interventions for some people, and they were absolutely for me. I think had I not had the the relief, albeit temporary, that I found from drug use, um, you know, I don't know that I would still be alive today because there was there was a lot of suicidality. There was an attempt that I made when I was 16. Um, so I think it as as much as it one could argue, hindered my ability to maybe get into some of the work of healing. It very much did also keep me alive. Um, And so I I started using drugs when I was 14. Right away, it was really addictive. You know, I was like always the last one standing at a party or wanting to continue partying the morning after. Uh, And that continued throughout my teens, really messed with my high high school experience. I dropped out at one point. I had to repeat all of grade 12 because I had failed out. There was run-ins with the police, et cetera. Uh, and that continued until I got sober at 25. So I feel, I feel really blessed to have been able to get sober pretty young because I don't know how in the, in the current climate of what the drug poisoning crisis looks like. And for folks who are maybe tuning in from outside of Canada, the drug poisoning crisis, what I'm referring to is the uh, amount of illicit fentanyl that's showing up in what was originally the heroin supply. Um, so I got, I got sober six and a half years ago, kind of just as fentanyl was starting to show up in uh, drugs other than heroin, uh, namely some of the drugs that I was using at the time. So I would have been, if I were, if I were still using now, I, I would be quite high risk for an overdose. Wow, uh, you know, Juno, it's I don't even know where to where where <laughs> it's just it's it's such a scope. Mm-hmm. I've been working in this field for so long, and yet it's such a scope of, and for the most part, except for organizations like yourselves, of of a lack of support, a lack of awareness, judgment, marginalization, stigma. You know, I love how you said it. You know, there's associated risks, and then there's associated benefits, and the fact that. And I, and I can relate to this in many ways. It, it kept you alive, even though it, mm-hmm. you know, there was harmful aspects. It, it kept you alive because uh, a death related, you know, I shouldn't say especially, but a, a death related, uh, a parent in, in terms of a death related loss is, is incredibly impactful on a teenager. And yeah. if there's no services and there's no awareness of it, or I love how you also said that, and I, I want to almost quote you is, let me just jog my, my feeble mind. 
significantly addressed by caregivers, correct? Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. spoke to that. Can you expand on that? Because I find there's one thing to have organizations spotty all over the country providing support, but then there's caregivers and how you define as caregivers that don't significantly, however you define significantly, address a death-related loss, let alone it being a parental suicide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of... I we continue to see one of the biggest failings of communities in general when there's been a stigmatized traumatic loss, like, um, which happens to be, I mean, doesn't happen to be, it is the work that I choose to, to do around like sudden loss. I think one of the biggest failings is being able to create space to witness grief to be able to normalize grief and talk about grief because we are really, really ill-equipped to talk about death generally. And when it's death that involves um, trauma or death that involves trauma and the person who died or the person who is grieving is coming from a marginalized community, we're even worse at it. Like this is what we see with, with overdose deaths. You know, often they don't even go addressed. People just don't know what to say. So it's not brought up. But I think for me, what if it, if it could have been done differently would be to be connected to a, a community of younger people. Now, Juno, just to, uh, to continue on that, that line, if as a 14-year-old you experienced uh, a parental death uh, as a result of suicide, what would have changed the trajectory of your experience of loss and substance use and drug use and what have you? If an organization or a, um, a someone was there or people were there or whoever was there to provide the support, what the support would have looked like for you, what would have been appropriate for you in terms of receiving that support? Would you have changed anything? Can we touch on that, especially given mm-hmm. you know your personal experience? Yeah, totally. Um, I've thought about this question a lot in terms of like if I could go back in time and maybe mobilize some support for my 14 year old self what what would I have hoped to have happened differently and uh, I think I have hopes for other 14 year olds that are going through something similar or youth who are growing up with like massive experiences of, of traumatic grief for me I don't think I would have changed anything if I could go back in time because there have been a huge amount of gifts that have come from me um, walking the path that I did and finding recovery and being able to be brought to this work as a result, like being able to do work that is like really deeply spiritually rewarding for me. But when I think about like if there were another 14 year old out there who were going through the same thing, um, I would hope that there would be a conversation amongst the caregivers involved that we're going to have to make room for this 14-year-old to be seen in their grief, and we're going to have to have regular conversations and get it out in the open uh, that this grief will be an ongoing process, and we need to talk about it. We need to talk about the person who has died, um, the, the kids, the youth involved who have lost someone need to be directly involved in planning what is happening after the death. So I'm a big proponent of including like kids and teens in memorial and ritual, et cetera, and not trying to, I think we think we're shielding them from pain, but in the long run, I think it does more damage and kind of forcing grief into the closet. And then that I would hope that, you know, if, if that 14 year old were going to start using drugs like me, they would be surrounded by service providers, teachers, parents, caregivers who are working from a harm reduction framework. Um, because that is something I, I definitely did not have access to. I was encouraged way, way before I was ready to stop using drugs. And I wasn't introduced to this concept of being able to find a relationship with my drug use that would negate some of those harms, um, but not try to remove it entirely. Because like I said, it was it was a life-saving coping mechanism for me at the time, and it needed to be there, even though there were some, some pretty wild harms that came from it. So yeah, having harm reduction supports in place. And I really believe that like, you know, earlier on in this conversation, I referred to harm reduction being a worldview that we can adapt to both substance use, but other things in our life that have carry a potential for risk. And I believe grief is one of those things. So 
one thing I'm really big on in the work that I do in the GLOW initiative is being able to apply a harm reduction paradigm to grief processes, which essentially means that we have the right to tap out if something about the grief process becomes harmful, or we have the right to engage in maybe some non-normative ways of coping or self-soothing um, as as a means to, you know, not further get ourselves into emotional harm where we maybe don't need to go that deep that fast, if that makes sense. So I think, yeah, getting getting things out in the open, um, having adults around a youth that are not afraid of talking about the nature of the death, especially with suicide or other stigmatized forms of death, um, and then harm reduction frameworks, which we are seeing more and more in youth mental health support. I think in the in the past six years that I've been in this sector, I've seen it harm reduction frameworks be adopted even within the school system. And I've done some work within the Toronto District School Board to bring harm reduction into classrooms, uh, which gives me a lot of hope because harm reduction is really well suited for, for work with youth. No doubt. And you know, in my own ignorance, that's the first time I've heard about harm reduction that's not uh, that doesn't speak to substances and drugs being applied to grieving. And I, I want to ask you a little bit more mm -hmm. about that because without getting too simplistic, harm reduction is also wearing a bike helmet. It's wearing a condom. It's, you know, there's all yeah. these other aspects of, of harm reduction. People go, oh, wow, really? I thought it's just drugs. And now you just taught me something in terms of harm reduction and the grieving process and the grief support. Can you uh, expand on that, especially as it relates to witnessing grief? And as mm -hmm. you've mentioned, co-creating ritual. So how do we have harm reduction or how do you apply a harm reduction approach to grief support with children and youth? Mm, yeah. So one of the ways, and I can talk about kind of first what we do with adults, because that's the population we work with within the program that I've built. My, the foundation that I start from is understanding that grief and loss and our relationship to it is inherently a personal understanding and we may have these kind of cultural understandings of maybe it's you know we're coming from those stage and phase models like the five stages of grief maybe that works for us maybe it doesn't or maybe we imagine grief as uh you know like a relationship that we are going to enter into with this really difficult thing that has come into our lives and we have to find a a way to negotiate moving forward with it being present um harm reduction says that we all have the right to interpret our substance use or a risky behavior in a way that works for us. And I like to apply that to grief to push back against the ways that I think in a kind of pop psychology way, we have been fed um, a story about what grief is supposed to look like that is actually very prescriptive. Um, and I always like to, whenever I'm doing psychoeducation or like workshops around grief and loss theory, I always like to point out that the history of the five stages of grief uh, has been hugely extrapolated and misinterpreted over the years since Kubler-Ross wrote it, um, that the five stages were actually a result of her work doing end-of-life palliative and hospice care, right? They were They were actually not created to describe the experience of people who had lost a beloved to a death. It was someone who was approaching their own death. Um, so coming back to how we do that in in uh, a harm reduction kind of context with adults is being able to create a space where people get to create their own definition of what grief looks like and create kind of their own roadmap of how they are enter in, uh, entering into their grief and how they are going to navigate it, right? So if I envision it as those stage and phases to move through, that's up to me and I get to continue with that understanding. And if I don't like that understanding and I need a kind of different paradigm or way of um, navigating it, I have the right to do that, which I feel is very harm reduction focused. And then in terms of like co-creation and ritual and ceremony, I mean, harm reduction is all about co-creation, right? And it's, it's about um, community efforts to come together and design programming or interventions that are place dependent, that are context dependent, uh, that are really specific to the community needs that are present. Uh, and that's something that's really important to me to be able to do in grief. And I think that also really challenges, again, some of the prescriptive ways 
we've been taught to do grief or do bereavement in like very white Western colonial society. And I could go on a whole rant about how I feel the funeral industry has really impeded our ability to get in touch with our grief. But I think we've been fed this idea that grief and loss needs to look a certain way. Uh, and we're have also been told that we're not allowed to be involved in, in co-creating those spaces or, or designating what we feel they should look like. So being able to do that with children and youth, I think there's really exciting opportunities to bring play into it. I think that like play and creativity and laughter is a really, really important part of this process. Obviously, you can't force it, but being able to open channels to encourage play and uh, creative expression is really, really huge. Uh, and I think about, you know, the ways I've done that in like children's grief groups. When I was previously working in the mainstream bereavement sector, being able to like literally sit down with kids and co-create like a play about their grief experience and being able to draw things in like that. I couldn't agree more, Juno. I couldn't agree more, especially the aspects of prescriptive grief support. And so much of that is based on research on predominantly white demographics, right? We're not totally. looking at demographics and diversities of people other than those. And Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, you're absolutely right. I'm so happy you brought that up because sometimes so often, even in the work that I do in hospice palliative care, people don't recognize or it's not recognized that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was talking about somebody's dying experience, not necessarily yeah. people's grieving, right? And this, how the stages are are. Even people that I support and the bereavement support that I provide, they think they're supposed to follow these stages. And they're taught oftentimes, unfortunately, by social workers and well-meaning bereavement support that these are the stages and we wait to get through those stages. And, and that's, we apply that to, I think, even, even more so as prescriptive with children, uh, at children's grief support. Can I ask you just for clarification so audiences can, can get a, a sharper grasp of it? When you say prescriptive, and I, mm -hmm. I, I think I know what you're talking about because I work in the field. What do you mean by prescriptive uh, grief and bereavement, especially from a supportive model? Mm -hmm. It means it's it's not client-led. And being client-led, or as we also say in harm reduction, person-centered, means that the person who is accessing services or support gets to identify what their goals or stumbling blocks are or barriers are and have a direct hand in uh, leading and creating the service that they want to receive, right? Which I think we could talk endlessly about why we see this happen more in grief support. Um, I think largely because, you know, death is something that in white colonial society, we are really, really ill equipped to talk about. So it's easier to adhere to something that's prescriptive, especially if it's been signed off on on by academia or research or, you know, institutions of that nature. Um, but prescriptive, prescriptive essentially meaning that it's not being co-created. It's, it's following a kind of uh, a recipe that we've been relying on that may work for, you know, the most privileged of the people who are accessing the service, but was not designed to meet the needs of people living in the margins. In the margins, absolutely. And when you speak about people living in those margins, how do you, if I may ask, or if you can give us an example, do you know, how do you co-create that person-centered, that child-centered, you know, person-centered mm -hmm. experience of ritual and memorial through grieving? Mm -hmm. This is one of the areas that I... um I really love to do in this work, uh, ritual and ceremony is a huge part of my own spiritual practice, but I think it's, you can do it in a way that is also secular or humanistic or, you know, very non-denominational. And we do it often within the GLOW initiative. And usually it just starts as a conversation around, you know, what, what is meaningful for you in remembering or honoring this person, or what traditions are there from your ancestry, your lineage, your culture, whether that's like, you know, an ethnic, ethnic or racial culture, or it's a culture of drug use, etc. What is meaningful in those spaces? And how do we adapt it to be something that is going to be meaningful for us right now, you know, and I, I find a lot of power personally, as someone who is divesting increasingly from, you know, the 
very whitewashed funeral industry way of doing things in being able to reclaim like what my ancestral traditions would be, uh, what my community traditions would be in terms of coming from queer and trans community. And that's where like that's where I find there's a lot of opportunity for play, right? Just starting with our conversation around, you know, what is sacred to us? What does it mean to honor this person in a way that resonates with our community? And you know, I, I'm I'm not sidestepping or avoiding it. I can very much appreciate and acknowledge what you're speaking about in terms of the funeral industry as it is a for profit sector, except we have funding that often comes from the funeral industry, but I get it. Absolutely. I get mm-hmm. it. And my partner works in that field. So I, I, I hear you <laughs> very <Yeah>. loud and clear, <laughs> but I wanted to relate to something else that you mentioned. When you talk about client led and, and person centered, are we talking about personal culture and the aspect of, I'm sure, I'm sure you're well versed in it uh, or maybe not, but uh, this aspect of cultural humility. Yeah. I mean, it can be. Um, I think Coming in, this is something I'm mindful as as a white person coming into spaces, and I've done some work within and with Indigenous communities around grief and loss, and am again this summer coming into an Indigenous-led agency uh, for Indigenous women in Toronto to lead a training. But coming in, coming in with a sense of humility, but coming in with the understanding that I am not, I'm not coming in positioning myself as an expert carrying academic knowledge. I'm coming in as someone who has the skills of facilitation to create a container to talk about, you know, what is meaningful for the group that is present and to kind of pull out the wisdom and skills that's already in the room, which is, I mean, that's that's 101 of how we do like good facilitation practice that I think often in social work and like in very white social work, we miss the mark and we kind of parachute in positioning ourselves as experts. And then once we leave, we leave with that expertise. And one of the aims of the GROW initiative from the beginning was being able to have conversations with communities that would elicit them to identify what their skills are and be able to do this for themselves. And sometimes within social work, we call that capacity building. For me, it's just coming in to to create a container and a space so that people can kind of realize that, you know, as long as systems take care of them, and this is really key, as long as systems take care of them and enable that kind of systemic capacity, they, they have the inherent skills to be able to do this. Yes. Yes. Well said, Gino. And just for clarification, because yeah, I love your languaging. Uh, to create a container, what does that mean? What is? How do you define that? How do you do that? Yeah, to create a container means to, you know, have the facilitation skills to encourage people to identify that they they do have these skills already. So I think there's like, you know, I'm big on coming in to give pep talks to communities also because I think that's something that is hugely, hugely needed and people are looking for sometimes but don't necessarily realizing it. To create a container means to create a space that feels sacred and as safe as possible while also acknowledging that, you know, universal safety is is not a thing and Something that is accessible and safe for me may not be for you. So being able to negotiate uh, the complexities of that, but really just create a space where I am someone who can be relied on to step in if there's, you know, a need to be addressed, again, without positioning myself as an expert. And I mean, sometimes people are also looking for someone to come in who has a little bit of the background knowledge on on grief and loss theory or whatever the topic is that we're discussing. And I find that, you know, it's it's really split between what communities or what agencies are looking for. Sometimes they are just looking for someone who is not as burnt out as they are, who has the capacity to come in and hold that container and have the facilitation skills. And then they're good. They know what needs to be done. Uh, and then other times it's people who do want kind of like more of that theoretical knowledge, which I also really like to do. But at the end of the day, having a head full of theory and a heavy heart, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily make things easier. No, certainly not. Especially uh, if the experience of grief is traumatizing, the brain 
yeah. parts of the brain just turn off, right? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm excited about something that you're coming to Lighthouse to provide some education in uh, in the perspectives of the work you do. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit, you know, and this is a bit of a plug, but, you know, for, for the work that you do, because I suspect you do this outreach and education in other sectors and other organizations. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So what would you provide in such uh, an engagement? Such a yeah. presentation, quote unquote presentation. So one of the one of the hopes we have for the Glow Initiative is that we are able to be a kind of capacity building hub for other agencies that are looking to push past maybe the kind of clinical academic prescriptive models of grief support that they've been relying on that are realizing that that is failing a lot of communities and they want to be able to do things in uh, a more decolonial way. Uh, in a way that meets the needs of service users who are coming in as drug users or living in the margins in some other way. So the the work that I am doing at Breakaway doesn't always encapsulate being able to do that work with other agencies. Primarily, we do that within the harm reduction sector now. Uh, it is something I do kind of on like a freelance consultancy basis. But what we do primarily in the, the GLOW initiative right now is kind of three or four different modes of support. The bread and butter of the program, which is unfortunately not in taking new people right now uh, due to funding limitations, is the one-to-one support. And to my knowledge, we are the first program in Canada that is offering worker wellness supports like this, like actual paid counseling. So everything is free um, so long as you're within our catchment area and you identify as being a frontline worker. You can access one-to-one sessions uh, that are either talk-based with a social worker or psychotherapist. Or if you're not into the talk-based, we have a whole range of different somatic or body-based modalities too, from acupuncture, uh, herbal medicine, indigenous-specific supports, massage, uh, somatics counseling, sound baths, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And that's pretty. That's something that is pretty innovative when it comes to grief and loss supports. Is being able to do kind of body-based grief and loss. And uh, to my knowledge, there's not other organizations in uh, Toronto doing that for the grief and loss sector. And I hope that is something we can push for in the future because we've had huge, huge uptake on uh, people who would rather be in the kind of somatic space when it comes to healing these things. Um, And then in addition to the one-to-one supports, we have a rapid response team that aims to be mobilized within 24 hours following a critical incident like a fatal overdose that impacts frontline harm reduction teams. So we actually physically go to agencies and do both trauma support and grief and loss support. Uh, And then we have drop-in wellness nights uh, on Fridays, where I will be later today, um, for frontline workers to receive some of those care modalities kind of in a group-based setting. Um, And then in in addition to that, we've got kind of the more heady academic-based, like uh, the training I mentioned I'm going to be launching in August for for organizations. So that's kind of an overview of what we do. Um, My hope since I stepped into this work is at some point there is a funded program that is able to do capacity building work directly with bereavement organizations and even within the funeral industry, because that's part of where I'm really passionate is being able to enact a kind of cultural shift. Because, you know, my experiences with the funeral funeral industry was that uh, it did not really meet my needs. Uh, and I don't know a lot of people who would say, coming from, you know, drug use communities who would say that it did. So that's one of the areas I hope to reach eventually. And uh, I'm always interested in connecting with people who are of like minds who work in, in the funeral industry to see how we can continue that conversation. Do you know, you said it didn't meet your needs as a 14-year-old or later in life? Yeah, as a 14-year-old, hugely, hugely. I remember feeling that uh, it was, it just felt like a really stuffy atmosphere that was prescriptive, kind of anonymous, uh, didn't speak to the ways of memorializing or ritualizing that would have been meaningful for me. I've also actually just completed a death doula course at a private college here in Toronto 
that was five months long so that I can start doing end of life care with folks as well. Cause that's one of the things I've, I've not yet had the opportunity to do, but I'm really interested in doing kind of the, the pre-death side of things as well and being able to have conversations about, you know, if, if the funeral industry doesn't meet our needs or that's not an avenue we want to explore, what are our options to have like, you know, caregivers and community directly involved in a memorial or a funeral that would be designed specifically to meet our needs together. Yes, absolutely. Well said, Juno, for sure. Uh, I wanted to circle back to what you spoke about, which is absolutely brilliant because I don't often heard, unless it's private in some holistic centers and what have you, but this aspect of body-based Grief and loss, uh, the you know the, the somatic addressing the somatic experience of it, you know as you've mentioned, a lot of uh, grieving and death related loss is somaticized. It's a form of mm-hmm. traumatization. Can you expand a little bit on that and how it would, would relate to children, youth, and teens? Yeah, totally. Um, so it was one of the things we recognized really early on with frontline workers who were already burnt out, and a lot of them were saying, "I am actually too burnt out to." step into kind of head talk-based psychotherapy around my experiences of trauma doing this work or the amount of grief that I'm living with from losing loved ones and clients. Um, so doing it on a, on a talk basis is not going to work for me, but what I am interested in is body care. Um, and we are really lucky in the GLOW Initiative to have some really incredible consultants who are all super, super versed in harm reduction and has been working in these communities for a long time and provide those services like acupuncture and massage therapy, et cetera. I think even, I mean, it's, it's a real lack within child and youth mental health, even let alone grief supports to be doing somatic wellness with children and youth. Um, I feel like kids and teens especially are kind of just treated as their heads in social services a lot of the time. And if there's any consideration of the body, it's just through like, well, you put them in sports and they get some exercise and work that out. I think it would be really, really beautiful to be able to work with kids and youth to foster those relationships with their bodies while they are taking up the work of healing from trauma or grief. Because, I mean, we've got decades of, you know, studies and research that now confirm that trauma can be stored in the body and it lives within our body and we would be very well served to address that on a somatic level too. Yeah, so I think that could be that would be something I'd be super interested in doing in the future if I ever have the the capacity to do child and youth grief work again is having like a somatic space program. Yes, yes, absolutely, Juno. You know, this this especially since there's a lot of focus on you know, children's and youth and teens' bodies and, and body image and, and all that. Totally. But this aspect of the somatic experience of grief, you know, living in their bodies. There's some great work and research out there for a few years now that speaks to that and how the body and children are oftentimes, I forgive me if I'm being <laughs> biased here, are often more in touch with their bodies than as we grow totally. as adults. And they speak the language of grief through their bodies, right? Or the experience of grief through their bodies. Yes, yes. Uh, one term that I, I hear coming up a lot, Juno, not with you, but in, in grief and bereavement, it's one of those prescriptive terms. There's so much focus on the beloved, the loved ones. But I know, especially in sectors of you know structural vulnerability and homelessness and substance use and drugs, there's many people out there that are grieving somebody they don't consider a loved one, but yeah. they still grieve them. And they could be chosen family, immediate family, bloodline family, whatever, you know, caregivers, they grieve them. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because I think a lot of that marginalizes or even excludes, you know, if people come to me, they say, you know what, they did this and they did that and they abused me, they harmed me, they did drugs and then they died. Am I allowed to grieve them? Right. Mm -hmm. Especially if they're teens or youth. Can you speak a little bit like that? Because the language in, you know, traditional uh, grief and bereavement support is loved ones. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And that's something I um, I really try to avoid unless the person I'm working with has, has identified that that's the language that they want to use. And I can speak from my own experience, first of all, that there have been periods in my own grief journey with my dad where I was obviously really angry with him. Uh, and I maybe wouldn't have referred to him as a loved one, depending on what I was working through at the time. 
so I, I tend, to, tend to use the language of your person or the person who died instead of immediately defaulting to loved one. And I think this also is tied to one of my personal understandings of, of what grief is and how it kind of comes about, is that grief is not necessarily predicated by love. Grief is predicated by a significant emotional attachment, which can be as complex as the life we're living, right? So especially, like you said, if you're factoring in, if someone had a history of chaotic substance use, if someone had been potentially abusive in their life, if we had a fractured relationship with them, we can still have an emotional attachment to that person without necessarily having the experience of loving them. Um, and I always think back when I'm having this conversation, especially with other service providers, when I'm doing capacity building training, of this young woman that I worked with uh, when I was working at a bereavement agency about four and a half years ago. And we were, had been doing one-to-one -one work together uh, with me kind of as a peer supporter service provider. And she came to me after her boyfriend who had died and we'd been working together for a number of sessions before she finally opened up and said, you know, I feel really guilty about this, but I'm actually really relieved that he died uh, because it had been an abusive relationship for a while and I didn't know how to leave. And I was scared of leaving, you know, there was like, there was a threat of violence if I was going to leave. Um, and he had died from an overdose. And this woman was really conflicted because the way she had culturally been told she was supposed to do her grief was that to m memorialize him would be remembering him only in a positive light, referring to him as a loved one, uh, and that her grief would be, you know, tied to missing him uh, and grieving that he was no longer in her life. And through our work together, um, there was kind of not that that internalized understanding immediately evaporated, but I think she was able to find a little bit of relief and at least being able to admit openly that her grief experience involved relief um, and that it was it was okay that it was complicated and complex for her because that was the nature of the relationship. It wasn't just cut and dry that he had died and she was going to mourn him and miss him, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes, you know. Yeah, and, and I can relate very, very much with that because there's somebody that I'm supporting that is that, you know, the person that died was experiencing chaotic substance use and this person's very angry that that person died, even though they died with us of a progressive life-limiting illness, that piece of it separated them and isolated them and, and caused a lot of chaos. And the grief is still there. And that's the question they asked me right off the bat. They said, is it okay if I, I grieve them, considering I'm angry, I hate them, I am I was traumatized, uh, I hate the drugs they did, I hate the lifestyle they did, but I miss the F out of them, you know, and, and mm -hmm. is it okay? Because no, everywhere else I see loved one, loved one, loved one. Well, I don't consider them a loved one. Yeah. You know, and I, I appreciate your advocacy in that. Thank you. I think we need, that's when you talk about prescriptive. There's so much language within the bereavement sector and it gets, for lack of better wording, worse in the children's grief sector because we talk constantly about, you know, the loved one. And, you know, I experienced a lot of childhood developmental trauma. When my father dies, I, it'll be challenging for me because he has congestive heart failure. It'll be challenging for me to identify him as a loved one. And I can't imagine for yourself experiencing the anger and that surfaced when when your dad died of suicide and, and and the life that he led. Yeah, it's it complicates the picture very much, especially if there isn't somebody to sit with us in that grief as it's presenting itself. Yeah, totally. And I think one of the the things we have to be committed to in this work, even though sometimes it gets really confusing, is that it is not necessarily always going to be neat and tidy. It's going to be messy. It's going to have a lot of contradictions and paradox within it. And we have to be able to like hold a container that encompasses that that experience is okay. And that is normal, you know, for the people that we are working with. And I think especially for children who, you know, we don't let advocate for them. Um, we don't give them voice to say what they would want in their support. Um, we have to we have to leave it very broad and roomy because children have like really beautiful means of expressing in non-normative ways too. You know, I, I like think back to some of the children's groups I facilitated, and kids say the wildest things about death, 
And I think we're really, really quick to shut down those things because they don't fit neatly into, you know, the way we've been told we're supposed to do this as a culture in terms of, you know, respectability politics and all of that kind of stuff. But kids will really push back against that and we have to let them. Exactly. You know, they push back or they run, right? They yeah. go somewhere else. Yeah. They go do something. I get it. Absolutely. And that's that's where we lose them. That's why I feel uh, a lot of the, the children we see in children's grief support is just the tip of the iceberg of the children that are and youth and teens that are, are needing it or are wanting it, especially with the diversities that we have in, in Ontario. Yeah, exactly. You know, I can't thank you enough for the incredible wisdom, insights, knowledge, whatever you want to call it. It's just, it, it's it's so refreshing and so needed. I'm excited to hear that you're doing education and training and get out, getting out there. People need to hear you, right? So how do people, I mean, obviously, you know, there's Breakaway Community Services, www.breakawaycs.ca, but how do people get in touch with you? Is it through Breakaway Community Services or how do they bring you on board to provide education, knowledge sharing and training? Yeah, totally. So I'm I'm reachable uh, if you're working within the harm reduction sector. Um, I'm reachable through Breakaway. And this is also a good push for me to finish up my consultancy website that I've been working on for a couple months but had been sidetracked on. Um, so if you just Google my name, I think I'm the only person in the world with the name Juno Zabbitt, and uh, you'll find the spelling for that on the podcast, and uh, I can be reachable there. Excellent, Juno. That's J-U-N-O Zavitz, Z-A-V-I-T-Z. Yeah, you got it. Anything you want to finally add to us as we sign off on this podcast, Juno? I mean, it was so encompassing and such a breadth and I feel like I could have spoken to you for another couple of hours, but, yeah. <laughs> but anything you have so much wisdom, I'm personal and professional. Anything else you'd like to leave with us? I would say, like, if you're someone who's interested in having these conversations, there are there are communities of you know sometimes what we call like death positive minded folks popping up all over the place worldwide. I know there's a number of different networks and organizations, and um, you know peer collectives that are starting to have these conversations about how we do death, dying, and grief in a better way that actually resonates for the people who need that support. Uh, so seek those people out, whether it's for professional development or, you know, a grief process that you're moving through on your own. Um, if you're interested in having those conversations, know that other people are too. Uh, amazing, Juno. And I'm hoping one day that, although we still, I feel personally that we live in a death-aversive, death-denying society, I'm hoping the stigma and, and uh, marginalization of even the philosophy and application of harm reduction it becomes mainstream, and I, th- I think I think it will. I hope grief, loss, death, and dying becomes common language, and I hope harm reduction is a part of that because you can't really do death care and bereavement care without a harm reduction approach. Agreed, absolutely. Thank you again, Juno, folks. If you want more information on on the work that we do at Lighthouse for Grieving Children please visit us at www.lighthousegriefsupport.org or check out our social media on Instagram and Facebook. As I mentioned, Juno provided their contact information and their website should be up and ready soon. We will definitely share that. And you could also check out www.breakawaycommunityservice.ca. Be careful out there, folks, and, and please stay safe. Thank you very much.